You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. So today, uh, we're starting a new series um, that I'm calling, inventively, Spiritual Volcanology. <laughs> uh, and I... Th- was wondering like, ah, should I really call it this? It sounds a little weird, but you know what? I can do, I can do that. So I did. Um, and to kind of clue you in on what, what I'm doing with this, um, the title is Spiritual Volcanology, Uncovering the Mystical in the Rocks of Religion. And the reason why I'm drawing on that metaphor of volcanology is because of this quote from David Stendhal Rass, a Benedictine monk that is quite wise and insightful. And this this is a quote I've read before, but I'm, I just always go back to it. I'm always inspired by it. But this is the inspiration for this, for this month-long series I'm going to be doing here. The religions start from mysticism. There is no other way to start a religion. But I compare this to a volcano that gushes forth, and then the magma flows down the sides of the mountain and cools off. And when it reaches the bottom, it's just rocks. You'd never guess that there was fire in it. So after a couple hundred years or 2,000 years or more, what was once alive is dead rock. Doctrine becomes doctrinaire. Morals become moralistic. Rituals become ritualistic. What do we do with it? We have to push through this crust and go to the fire that's within it, end quote. That's the inspiration for this series I'm calling Spiritual Volcanology. I want us to be spiritual volcanologists here. Uh, I always want us to be that. And the way that we're going to do that is by digging into the rocks of our religion to find this fire within. And I want us to recapture the mystical roots of Christianity by looking at key scriptures, church practices, and the mystics themselves from the church, from church history, um, perhaps other religions too that can help us with that. And part of the reason why I want to do this series is because I get asked all the time, what gets reconstructed after deconstruction? That's a, that's a hot question in a community like this one in circles like ours, what gets reconstructed after deconstruction? And the answer, I think, is, in my humble opinion, what gets reconstructed is what was always there in the first place, but perhaps remained hidden and unseen, which to me is this story of oneness and connection. Our oneness and connection with others, our oneness and connection with nature and the cosmos and our oneness and our connection with the divine, the sacred, the holy, ultimate reality, whatever you want to call it, whatever term works for you. The bottom line for me is that this story of oneness and connection is the best story, the best thing, if I may be so bold, that our spiritual traditions and our religions have to offer us. That's because it's connection that offers us meaning. It's connection 
that offers us hope. It's connection that offers us, I think, a sense of transcendence, that we're part of something much bigger than ourselves, that we're not just particles and waves, so to speak. Connection is everything. And, and mysticism is traditionally about connection. Mysticism is defined as about oneness, this idea of oneness with God, experiencing oneness and connection. And this idea of oneness and connection, I think, is not just spiritually true, but physically, scientifically even, if you will. And, and I think breaking down this dualism, this distinction that we have between the spiritual and the physical, is part of what I want to accomplish in this series. And what I always actually not always, but I'm quite up to often in this in this church. I want to help us break down those distinctions. The, the problem is we've been taught to bifurcate ourselves and our world into these dualistic categories of body and mind, you know, spirit and body, or matter and energy, space and time. Some of this is necessary. Sometimes thinking dualistically is necessary, but we need to remember that such distinctions such dualisms are human categories, human ways of thinking, human constructs, and not actually fundamentally real and true as we are increasingly discovering through various physical sciences. Science is increasingly demonstrating that there really is no fundamental distinction between matter and energy, mind and body, space and time. This oneness, this web of interrelatedness, we may call it, not only transcends the boundaries between physics and biology and chemistry, which by the way are human-made categories, biology, physics, and chemistry, we just come up with those categories, you know, exist somewhere out there in the ether, right? We use them, we superimpose them upon the world, and rightfully so, to understand the world and understand ourselves, but they are human-made categories that aren't hard and fixed in nature. There is instead a web of interrelatedness that transcends all of these boundaries, transcends even the boundaries between living and non-living matter, between conscious and unconscious matter or non-conscious matter. Understanding this oneness permeates all of reality. It's part of what I think is so spiritually enriching, the story that's so spiritually enriching. This is not just physically true, I, for me. This is a story that's spiritually true. I, I think this, this web of interrelatedness has a kind of spiritual implication for us. The more our religions and our spiritual communities and our spiritual traditions can help us realize and experience this oneness and connection to everything, the better for us. So that's what we're doing here. That's what we're, that's what we're gonna be doing by digging into the rocks of religion to find this fire within it and hopefully find the fire within us as well. Our text today comes from John's gospel. This is John chapter three, verses one through 12. It's a story. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. 
He came to Jesus by night, by night, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do what you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I have said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus replies, how can these, these, how, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? All right, there's the text. So Jesus is having a conversation with this Pharisee named Nicodemus here. Which is interesting because you know, we're told that the Pharisees were like Jesus' arch nemesis, right? And in some ways they were, but we shouldn't paint them with too broad of a brush. Some of them actually liked Jesus and supported them, like Nicodemus here. And you'll notice the text says that he came to Jesus by night, which is interesting. It comes to him in secret, like this clandestine meeting in the middle of the night, probably because he doesn't want to be seen. <laughs> with cavorting with this troublemaker, Jesus of Nazareth, and yet he calls him rabbi, which means teacher, a sign of respect, right? And so Nicodemus is this, you might call him a disciple of Jesus. And um, we're told elsewhere that Nicodemus stands up for Jesus, even among his colleagues, when the other Pharisees in the Sanhedrin wanted to have Jesus arrested and put to death, Nicodemus says to his colleagues, our law doesn't judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out uh, what they are doing, does it? To which the other Pharisees and the Sanhedrin reply sarcastically, surely you are not also from Galilee, are you? <laughs> In other words, you know, we're on to you, Nick. Imagine them calling him Nick. Uh, we're on to you, Nick. We can tell you that we can tell you're with this Jesus guy. Anyway, after Jesus is crucified, we're told that Nicodemus went with Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man who was also a follower of Jesus, these two unlikely guys, a Pharisee and a rich man, to take Jesus' body and bury him in a tomb and also prepare his body for burial by anointing his body with oil and spices. Again, a kind of ceremonial burial rite that was a sign of deep reverence and respect for the dead. This is who Nicodemus was. He was, a, he was a Pharisee, but a follower of Jesus. And yet he's totally confused here in our passage. And perhaps rightfully so. He's 
he's totally confused about Jesus's teachings on, on needing to be born of the Spirit. Nicodemus actually thought or told that Jesus was inferring that you've got to be you know, reincarnated, physically born again through your mom, which is a terrifying idea, actually. It's a horrible imagery. Every time I read this passage, I'm like, oh my God. Um, but you know, this is interesting, right? Um, this reveals just how much Jesus was challenging his conceptions of God, what it means to be you know, a child of God, or what it means to be religious, or what it means you know, to relate to the divine. Nicodemus could not wrap his mind around what Jesus was saying. And so Jesus basically says to him, what I'm talking about, Nicodemus, will not fit into your categories. It will not fit into your current categories of thinking about God and spirit, religion. You need a whole new set of categories to get what I'm saying, Jesus it was saying. This, you know, Nicodemus's categories were fundamentally just religious and superficial in nature. To be born of the Spirit means to be born of something like the wind, Jesus says. This is a great metaphor, a mystical metaphor. The wind, what is the wind? It's this, especially in the ancient world, we understand it better now through meteorology, right? We know that it's currents of air moving from different pressure gradients, right? But it's a great metaphor. The wind is this mysterious unseen force that is found everywhere all around us, and yet you have no idea where it is coming from or where it is going. Jesus is describing, using this wind metaphor as a way of describing God in bigger ways than Nicodemus ever thought, ever imagined. You know, we all can be a bit like Nicodemus, right? As religious folks, many of us grew up conservative, evangelical, and thought in these really narrow categories, doctrinal, dogmatic categories about who God was, is, and how God works in the world, right? We all can be like Nicodemus and think in these narrow religious categories that we grew up with and that we were handed by our pastors and our parents. But Jesus calls us to let go of these parochial categories and embrace instead a much bigger understanding of God that in many ways defies, undermines, transcends any categories of thinking about God. Trying to systematize theology or systematize God and or trying to define God in any narrow way is like chasing after the wind. It's like trying to contain the wind. Who can do that? And yet we're born of this wind, Jesus is saying. We're born of this, of this spirit, which is a pretty mystical idea. To be born of the spirit means to be born of something fluid and intangible, like the air around us. To be born of the spirit is to be born of this ubiquitous and powerful unseen force. 
It's everywhere, but it's unseen. You can see the effects of the wind in the trees. You can feel it on your skin. Feel it in your hair. But you can't see the wind, can you? In the same way, you can see the effects of the Spirit. You can feel the Spirit. You don't see the Spirit itself. And yet we were born of this Spirit. Which is to say we are. We are this Spirit. Not just born of it. We are Spirit. We are this wind, this energy, this Spirit. And for me, the, the trick, so to speak, is to simply become aware of this. You don't, we're born already of the spirit, I think. The trick is to become aware of it, to realize it, to live into it, follow Christ's invitation, join him in the kingdom. We're already born of it. We're already a child of God. The trick is to become aware of it. We might call it, to say to have faith in it, <laughs> to become aware. Faith can be understood as a kind of awareness here. We can choose. We have the power to choose to live into this spirit consciousness, if you will. We can choose. We should choose, in my opinion, to live into this spirit consciousness and let it change the way that we think and live and see ourselves and see others, to see the world, to see nature, to see the cosmos, and of course, to see God, so to speak, or think of God. I love how, I think it's First John puts it, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, seeing each other, seeing through the lens of love is the Christian way of seeing God. This, this too is a kind of deeply mystical idea. God is present right now, right here in the form of each other. And in the spirit of love and compassion and empathy, and this radical embrace of this life, this world, in the name of love, that's God. That's the spirit, right here, right now, everywhere, like the air around you. Like Nicodemus, we must, however, first let go of our rigid and superficial thinking in order to get to this level of consciousness, this level of awareness. We gotta let go of our parochial, our narrow, rigid, and superficial thinking about God, religion. We must let go of the limiting and inhibiting religious categories we were raised on. And we're doing a pretty good job of that here. <laughs> Let's be honest. Okay, I don't have to really preach that. We must deconstruct, to use the contemporary term. Here we see how deconstruction can be inherently reconstructive. Deconstruction doesn't have to be experienced as a loss, but as a gain. Deconstruction can simply be about letting go of what doesn't work anymore for the sake of holding on to what does. I love how Paul puts it, you know, 
I have experienced you know, the loss of everything for the sake of Christ. But what I lost, I experienced now is gain. He flips it on its head. Loss is gain here. Deconstruction is really reconstruction. It doesn't have to be experienced as a loss, but as a gain. It can be simply about letting go of what doesn't work for the sake of holding on to what does. I think lots of us don't experience deconstruction as losing God so much. Most people I know who go through deconstruction do not become complete atheists. That's okay if you do. But most people don't. It's simply, mostly, I should say simply, mostly about losing what doesn't work anymore in our ways of thinking about God, which is a very positive thing. Deconstruction isn't all bad and sad. I think it's mostly a reconstructive thing. We just need to think of it in those terms. And so I, I think we can think of deconstruction as a way of uncovering the mystical fire within us. This spiritual volcanology I'm talking about for the next month isn't just about digging into or uncovering the fire, the mystical fire within the rocks of religion, but it's about deconstructing and digging into ourselves, our concepts of self, our concepts of reality, and uncovering the mystical fire within us, within all of nature. It's a mystical fire burning at the heart of everything, I think. This is the truth of our oneness, this web of interrelatedness, this, this matrix, if I may use the term, that we live in. And so I want to pivot now into this time of the Eucharist, Holy Communion. Part of the meaning of the Lord's Supper for me is that all of creation, all of creation, all of the cosmos is revealed to be spirit and the body of God. Think about it. When Jesus took the bread and the wine and said, this is my body, this is my blood, to me, that means that all of creation is the body of God. Every if, if grapes and grain is metaphorically, symbolically, the body of God, grapes and grain right there, then it'll, and we ingest that as a way of affirming that we have become the body of God, flesh and bone. What are the elements in our body? Let's get scientific. Carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, iron, few other things, right? These elements, fundamental elements of nature are in fact the body of God, are in fact the spirit. That's the deeper meaning of this sacrament for me. It's, it's this pantheistic revelation that all of creation in the cosmos, not just us, everything, grapes and grain, everything is the body of God. This is my body. This is my blood, says the Lord. This is profound. And then we're told in our Christian tradition that at Pentecost, God's spirit poured out once and for all into this world, not just into us. We have become the temples, so to speak, of the spirit, but all the world now is saturated with the spirit of God 
And I like to think of it not so much as an event that happened 2,000 years ago, but a revelation that this is the way things have always been. Everything has always been saturated with spirit and is spirit. To me, is the deeper meaning of Pentecost and the Lord's Supper. That's the fire within these so-called rocks and within us. And so this morning as we partake, let's meditate on that. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. So good. That's actually from an artist in Nashville called Alana Sabatini. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Um, she grew up in the church. Um, was in, a, in her 20s, came out as gay, and was pretty much ostracized, and has turned those, some of those great hymns into ballads of love and affirmation for all those like us. Isn't that awesome? Anyway. Um, so, thoughts, questions? Um, remarks about mysticism and spiritual volcanology or this story of Jesus with Nicodemus today. Um, anybody have anything, whether you're present here or watching online? Um, how did all this strike you today? Yeah, uh, Emily. Love to hear anybody's stories or their journeys with, um, I guess, changing the ways that they think about God, too. Go ahead, Emily. Yeah. Well, I might be a little convoluted because this is how this That's cool. thought processed in my head during this time, but um, we all know that, like, my mom is pretty conservative, um, doesn't listen to science and, you know, just evidence of things that don't fit the narrative of her religion. Um, but one day we were having a conversation and she said um, something about, oh, if we, I said, if we only use 10% of our brains, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, no, Einstein only used 10% of his brain. And I was like, oh, okay. So I thought to combat her to what she thinks, if she thinks and believes like we all do, if he was probably the smartest person or one of the smartest people alive, what did he say about religion, right? So I just found two quotes from him that I thought were interesting. One is, science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. So right there, she's the, if he's the smartest person, my mom should, and she believes that he is, logic would say, you need to pay attention to science. Um, because I was also thinking like back then, like you said, we didn't know things, like we didn't know where the wind came from. We thought, you know, we didn't have evidence in science based and research and all this kind of stuff. Um, the other quote from Einstein was, I cannot conceive of a God who rewards and punishes his creatures or has a will of the kind that we experience in ourselves. I just thought like, if they only just listen to certain things, maybe like science would 
make sense. And we would realize that the thing, because I was thinking like, they probably got this whole born again from that quote that you said, where it was like, we're born again, so you have to, you know, it's a symbolism. Again, can't be literal if it's symbolizing, but whatever. <clears throat> I just think like it, they wouldn't be able to draw things from certain things if they actually paid attention to science and research and facts. It's just mind-blowing that they just go, well, there's just some things we won't know or don't know. No, there's, we know these things. You just choose to not believe that, you, that they're real. So it's just yeah. another frustrating point of <laughs> no, no, it's cool. Yeah, there's, you're right to point out there's a, a built-in aversion to science and yeah. expertise in those traditions we were raised in, and it's fear-based. Um, yeah, and Einstein is a complex character. In some ways, he adamantly rejected traditional theism and religion. Yeah, he was, but in other ways, uh, he, he affirmed certain understandings of, the, of God, we might say. Um, like all of us, he had a complex relationship right. <laughs> with, with, with those things. It's interesting, Richard Dawkins, one of the most prominent atheists, outspoken atheists today, in his book, uh, New York Times bestseller, The God Delusion, he spends pretty much the entire first, I think, like quarter of his book basically trying to demonstrate that he is not attacking in this book what he calls Einstein's God, which was more of this pantheistic cosmic mind. He's attacking fundamentalism, the God of my parents, your parents, the God we were raised in, and rightfully so, that we should all be atheists about that God. But it's interesting that even Dawkins will talk about Einstein's God in a positive light. And that's, yeah, that's good stuff. All right, somebody else today, anybody have comments or questions? We'll share a story about your experience with getting into a more mystical, yeah, Leanne. Emily, would you mind? Thank yeah. you. Yeah, this is more semantical, philosophic, but I've been interested, just on a theoretical basis, the difference between pantheism and panentheism. Just kind of the Spinozan, um, if anyone's kind of dabbled in Baruch Spinoza's theology and philosophy, it's fascinating. Um, his notion of pantheism, and he was persecuted and ridiculed in, I think, at the 16th century for writing that. But then also, I know Richard Rohr follows more of like a pan-entheistic. Um, and I think both are interesting, and I've just been sort of curious where you land, or curious in the, the difference of like, is all matter, like that is God? Like that's a pantheism, like this is God? Or is it this plus there's like an extra little something, something that's the N in panentheism. Did you want to def define pantheism or panentheism? That was kind of my rusty definitions, but you can probably okay, speak okay, on it better. Yeah. Uh, that's a great point, and I'm not sure exactly. I, I tend to land more over on the panentheist side, um, but again, I'm all about embracing uncertainty and unknowing here, so this isn't doctrinal for me. This is about, this is where I'm currently at. This is what I suspect. This is where I lean. This is what works for me. Um, but it's not, again, rigid, right? Uh, pantheism is basically, I mean, to just use the etymology, the basic breakdown of the word pan, all, theistic, God, all is God. All right. The universe, everything is God. This is literally, you know, God. Panentheism is that, this idea of all is inside of God, but God is bigger than what this is. 
um, Pete Rollins uses the metaphor of like a ship sunk at the bottom of the sea for panentheism. The sea is essentially God and the ship is located inside of God and the whole reason why it's sunk in this bottom of the sea is because there's ocean inside the ship. <laughs> the, you know, the ship contains a little bit of the ocean, but it's resting in the ocean. That's panentheism. It's kind of a pretty way of putting it. I always like that. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm right there. And I, I love how, and we'll explore this more in this series, you know, even our scriptures, I mean, Paul in Athens debating with the philosophers affirms Greek philosophy in Acts chapter 10 when he quotes one of their own poets or philosophers and says, you're right when you say that in God we live and move and have our being. Our beinghood is taking place within the beinghood of the divine. In him, in God, we live and move and have our being. That's a very pantheistic or panentheistic conception. So does that answer your question? Yeah, I was just musing on the difference between the two. And yes. I think some days I fall more on the like, I don't need an extra being to exist. Yeah. And then sometimes I'm like, oh, like the sunken ship metaphor is more appealing. Yeah. So I was curious where others and, and landed. For, and for me, the whole reason why this is important and not just like an academic cool thing. And by the way, love the Spinoza reference. <laughs> You're welcome. And how many churches are you going to hear about Spinoza? Anyway. Um, this one. This <laughs> Uh, what was I going to say before I got sidetracked on Spinoza? Oh, this isn't just academic for me. The whole reason why I think it's so important to reimagine God in those ways is to get away from that really theistic God is the old man in the sky, this all-powerful supreme being. I personally believe the more that we're set free from that tra traditional theistic conception of God, the more... The more um, we're set free from having to explain, you know, how can an all-powerful God allow evil exist in the world, you know? We can get more into the philosophy of that, but the more that we reimagine God not as a being, but the being of beings, if you will, which is, again, pantheistic, panentheistic, I think the better we're, we're off philosophically um, and, and getting away from these problems that have plagued religion forever. But anyway, that's, yeah. And real quick, I think that's the beauty, the beauty of Catholicism is um, Rohr talks about focusing on the material, how like the tangible, the material, the visual, the auditory, like that being a manifestation of God in a way that I think that other sects and denominations have turned to abstraction. No, that's a great point and a great affirmation of our Catholic brothers and sisters. Thank you. Um, good stuff. Anybody else this morning? What is this sparking for you? Yes, sir. Hey, hey, can we get you the mic so people can hear you? Oh, we got it right here. Welcome. How you doing? My name is Michael Wilson. I'm from Las Vegas, Nevada. You're from oh, where? Sorry? Las Vegas, Nevada. Oh, very cool. Welcome. You stay vacation with my, right across from that Yeah, hotel, got it. Uh, with my sister and uh, my wife and uh, her sister. It was her 70th birthday yesterday. And, um, my great grandmother's birthday was yesterday. She was born in 1909. She's 114, but she she's gone. She passed away, but may I rest in peace. And I haven't stepped in the church in a while since pandemic. And I just wanted to walk in. You know what I'm saying? I'd be on the prayer line every Friday, but I never walked back in the church since um, since pandemic. But I just wanted to read something. If it's, if it's okay, walk with God when your heart need company. Turn to God when you need someone to lean on. Take his hand when you feel alone. 
He is there when you need him most. He never give up, never back down, never lose faith. Trust God, he can do all impossibles. Just wanted to step into church this morning and say, you know, amen. Beautiful. And welcome and thank you for sharing your heart in that passage. Yes, thank uh, you. God bless you and your family. Thank yeah. you. You bet, yeah. Here, you can hand that to any. She's a good choice. <laughs> um, anybody else have any thoughts this morning? Any, anything that's sparking for you? All right, good stuff. Well, we'll end a little bit early today. Let's uh, say our benediction together, as we always do. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here. And go in peace.